Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to the Bible Immersion Podcast by the Well Madera, where we exist to point people to the hope and love and the wholeness found only in Jesus Christ. And the heart and the vision of this podcast is to do that by showing how every single story of Scripture snaps together to shape the one true story of Jesus. And we're calling this podcast Bible Immersion because we recognize that reading the Bible is its a lot like learning a new language. Uh, not only that, it's like stepping back into a completely new and unfamiliar time zone in a culture and a context that expects you to be fluent in their history and cultural traditions and even their inside jokes. And as we all know, the best way to learn another language is to completely immerse yourself in the culture and force yourself to begin thinking about everything through the life and the eyes and the language of that culture. And this is what the Bible is inviting you and me to do. We immerse ourselves in the story and we allow it to shape our identity as we begin to see that even a few thousand years later, we are still living within this same one true story. So as we walk line by line through the scriptures to know who God is and what he's like and what it means to be human as we're shaped by the story of Jesus, come with us and see how this divine gift of the scriptures points us to the past to inspire hope for the future. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 2 this morning. So Proverbs chapter 2, and if somebody would be willing to read, we'll do a larger chunk, and I'm not going to teach on it as much as just, they're so good. I just wanted to warm up with some Proverbs 2, 1 through 11, and then we'll uh, I'll pray for us, and we'll hand it over to Sean for some Genesis 8, but... Whoever gets there first, uh, could you rock and roll with some Proverbs 2, 1 through 11? My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as a hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom from the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come unto your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. All right. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, I love these verses. One of the things that that strikes me about these, um, I pray these for, I started praying these verses for Finn when he was first born, and so now I'm praying for Finn and Tessa and What I love about these verses is it's a dad uh, writing to his son, um, but I just think of it for for my kiddos and want them to grow up knowing that wisdom isn't something that comes naturally. It doesn't just land in your lap. I think somehow we kind of fell into this um, false notion that the older you get, the wiser you get. And yes, that's true because you've experienced more of life and so forth, but it's also this pursuit Um, so as you get older, as you mature, as you experience more of life, I think your perspective grows, but this is a dad telling his son, you got to pursue wisdom. You got to look for it. You got to search for it. You got to store it up. You got to hunger for it. If, and really essentially wisdom is seeing things from God's perspective. It's, it's seeing the way God has made the world. It's seeing, um, what God calls right and what he calls wrong and, and seeing and believing things from his perspective rather than your own limited perspective. And so I, I love these verses of just a pursuit of wisdom. I mean, how beautiful would it be to spend your life pursuing, uh, seeing the world and understanding it the way that God has designed the world. And then as you get older, you do, you get more wise and mature and you see that 
It talks about how it will protect you and, and guard you, and it'll help you to know what is right and just and fair, every good path to, to be a man or a woman of wisdom. So that's just one of my prayers for my kiddos. Uh, anything you guys see in those verses uh, grab your attention this morning? Dave, I, I wasn't able to follow along because I was bringing my logo stuff, but um, was it differentiating in that, was it differentiating uh, worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom? Uh, it doesn't go into that too much. It does a little bit later on in Proverbs. This is more so just like the pursuit of it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like to pursue wisdom. Um but yeah, I think it's chapter three that goes a little bit more into that of like pursue wisdom, God's wisdom rather than worldly wisdom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Let me uh, let me pray for us, and then Sean, I can hand it on over to you. We'll roll into Genesis eight. So, Father, we. Love you. Uh, Thank you for this morning. Uh, Thank you for my brothers and my sisters here to just open the Word of God, to hear your truth. And so I thank you for each one of these uh, friends of mine who would wake up at uh, five in the morning and spend time in your Word. That shows me right here um, that that we are hungry for wisdom. That's, That's why we wake up at at this time and open the word and spend time with you, spend time with each other is because we want to know more. We want to know you. We want to see things the way you see them. And so I thank you for friends that care about wisdom, that care about your things more than just our own limited perspective. So Lord, we do. We pray for wisdom. We pray for truth. We pray that we would know the story, the, the one true story of the Bible in such a way that it shapes everything about us. Uh, so we thank you for the story of Noah, just so much uh, goodness in there. We thank you for this man who walked by faith with you, Lord. We want to be men and women who walk by faith, even if if people mock us for 120 years uh, for being crazy because of our faith in you. May we walk consistently with you. So thank you for this story, this true story. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right. So I think we left off at the end of chapter 7. Is that correct, guys? Yes? <clears throat> okay. Who, uh, who can summarize chapter 7 for me real quick? Let me let me let me ask another question. Ask question. Yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> the, the 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 clean and the unclean. What were the un? What was the purpose of the unclean? I got the clean. Okay. Um, I would say that if the earth was to replenish as it was before, <clears throat> both clean and unclean would need to be taken onto the ark. As to what God's purpose for the unclean was at the time. Other than that, I, I, I'm not sure. What would you say, Dave? Yeah, I'm not sure either. I think that's a, that's good, a great question. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that's a good response too. Is um, I don't know why, like the author goes into the distinction of clean and unclean, but uh, just a way of saying that pretty much every animal. Um, is being brought onto the ark here for, as you're saying, Sean, kind of a reordering or recreating of the world. And so, I don't know, it seems to be the language of like every animal coming on board, not just the clean, but also the unclean. And then if you have the the heart and the perseverance to read through the book of Leviticus, you'll begin to see the purpose of clean and unclean. Uh, It's really powerful how God lays out the reason he designates clean and unclean animals. The book of Leviticus really lays that out. But as far as why it's important um, here in seven, I'm not, I'm not sure other than that. Good question. 
I have a question on, on in that regard also, because it says in verse 7 to take with you seven pairs of all clean, but with the unclean, it just as a pair of the animals that are not clean. So I was just talking about one pair that's not clean. Yeah, it seems it seems to indicate that there's a single <clears throat> pair of animals that aren't clean. Um, let me ask you this. Why? Why do you think? Um, okay, let me back up a little bit. Um, Moses was writing this to, to um, well after the uh, Levitical law was put into place. And so when, um, when he's talking about clean and unclean, to us it sort of doesn't make sense. But to, to the Hebrews, it would immediately, they would know immediately, oh, this, this is why he's doing this or, or the purpose he's doing this. So um, I would have to go back and find the, the portion in Leviticus where it describes what each clean and unclean uh, animal is. Um, I guess my point to that is, to us, it kind of seems out of place, but there, there is a purpose for it. Um, if, if he is um, asking for one, un, one pair of unclean and seven pairs of clean, what, what, what the question for, for, that I ask is... Why do you think he asked for seven pairs of unclean? Remember, they're going to be on the ark for, I don't know, what is it, uh, almost a year, nine months or 11 months, something like that. <clears throat> what, what do you guys think the purpose of the, the clean animals is? What, what were clean animals for? I'm not, I'm not so certain about the clean, but I'm kind of certain about the one pair of unclean going into verse 8 today. I'm assuming he's referring to the raven because the raven are considered unclean birds. Yeah, we're going to talk about that today, too. That was a good, good so segue. I, that's the connection. That's good. So what, what are, un, are, what are clean animals used for? Sacrifice. Yeah. For sacrifice. What else? Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so we had an interesting conversation in my Monday night group um, because a uh, little spoiler, but right after Noah lands on the earth here in, in, in his boat, um, he's, he, God gives him the, what seems to be a um, uh, permission to, to eat the animals. And so the question is, were they eating animals prior to this? Um, and Dave, what do you think about that? Do, do you... I've always seen it as, yeah, when we get to chapter 9, God says you can have, you know, the plant of the field and the, the beast of the field in a sense. Um, I've always seen it as they were just herbivores before this, and then God says, hey, have at it. Here's the animals you can eat as well. So that's how I've always seen it. Um, I know maybe recently you just saw it a little differently. I'm not sure, but... Um, yeah, that's that's the way I've always thought of it. Is it was kind of right after the flood that God opens it up to eat plant and animal for human beings, but before yeah. this, it was just plants. Yeah. Um, either way, uh, I know that that one of the purposes for the seven pairs of clean animals is for sacrifice. So, um, as far as the unclean, I I think uh, it's probably just to. Uh, replicate once they get off of the ark. Mm -hmm. Does that help him? Why, so why do, why do they kill the animals for sacrifice? To please God? Yes. So, um, Dave, move back to chapter, the end of chapter three. Actually, uh, the, the, yeah, the end of chapter three, after the fall, and we see Adam and Eve cover themselves with fig leaves. Do you remember that? Huh? Okay, and then later in the chapter, as the chapter starts to conclude, it says that God made skins for Adam and Eve and clothed them. And so that clothing is, is, um, is to properly cover them. But in order to cover them with skins, an animal has to die. There has to be a death in order to get those skins. And so even though the, the scripture isn't, it doesn't say Hey, that blood has to be or, uh, blood has to be shed for atonement. I think 
if, when we look deeply into it, we see that even from the very beginning, something had to die to cover sins. So when we sacrifice animals, or we don't, but when, when they sacrificed animals, the purpose was um, that something had to die in their place for their sin, and, and blood had to be shed. And, and then we see later that Jesus took that place of those animals. Does that make sense? Kind of. Okay. What, um, what, what, part, is, what part is not clear? The why, maybe. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, hmm. Sean, I'll jump in just a little bit. Yeah, I, I think the why is a little tricky. Um, that's something I'm still trying to figure out. Um, I've even asked John and a few people in the medical world, hey, what's the significance of blood? Like, there's something to it because... Um, You'll see this in Leviticus as well, but all throughout Scripture, it talks about um, there is life in the blood. Like there's just something about the blood that like is really – it's the most like precious thing that a human or an animal has is blood. Um, There's a lot of things we need in order for survival, but there's something about blood that is just so precious, Um, obviously, and so vital – and so there's, there's that language in Leviticus um, of like, do not, like when God's going into all these details of what animals you can eat and can't eat and all that, he'll, he'll talk about, do not eat this animal with the blood still in it. So make sure you cook all the blood out of it because the life is in the blood. Like God is very serious about that. And I can't really quite get to the bottom of all that. I can't connect it all in my mind, but there's something really I think cool and, and meaningful there that I'm looking forward to maybe one day making that connection or God explaining it to me. But God does seem to be setting up from the very beginning this importance of when there is sin, sin leads to death and the payment for sin um, in order for there to be the reversal of sin and death, there needs to be there needs to be death in order to bring life. Um, So there's kind of like this swapping out, this substitution that needs to take place that when you and I sin, our sin leads to death, as we saw in Genesis 3. Well, there needs to be a death in our place in order for us to have death reversed and to experience life. So I don't know the why behind it. I, I can't wait to like fully understand that paradigm. But there's something powerful uh, about the blood that is very significant to God. Um, all throughout Scripture, blood matters. Yeah. Could it be that possibly because we're still in the Old Testament, it leads up to the New Testament, which is all about Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ shedding his blood for us is what gives us new life. So to me, that, is, that could be the connection, why blood right. is so important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and God, when, when we read through Scripture, <clears throat> Dave, I think you kind of brought it up, that um, God, God makes a statement more than once that, that the blood belongs to him. Like he has some ownership of blood. And I, I, I agree, Dave, mm-hmm. Dave, I don't know if it's, if it's the representation of life or not, but um, yeah, there, there, there has to be a death in order to atone for for our sin um dave that's the best i can do for you i'm sorry yeah that was cool no good question it got me thinking again that was a good question yeah dave maybe we need to sit down and talk about this more because i know we've had this conversation more than once and i would also like to get to the bottom of it i just don't know that the bible provides an answer as to why yeah Google didn't give us an answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Google let us down. Okay. So in chapter 7, sorry, any more questions? No. Okay. Um, in chapter 7, we see that, um, actually in chapter 6, we remember that Scripture says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generations. Do you guys remember why Noah was considered righteous? Because he was faithful and obedient. 
Okay. Um, yes. The, the, that particular verse says, because he believed God. And I think, and what you said is an evidence that he believed God. At the end of the chapter, we see Noah did all that God commanded him. And we continually see that. To, and this, this is not, again, not to make this a works gospel because it's not. But when Noah does all that God commanded him, it's evidence that he believed God. Um, okay, so he brings seven pairs. Um, the floodwaters come upon the earth. The, the fountains burst forth from underneath and rain falls. Remember, we had no rain before that. Um, interesting statement that God shut him in. Noah didn't do it, but God shut him in, kind of indicating a, a protective hand on, on, uh, on Noah and his family. Um, the, earth or the, the flood continued for 40 days. Uh, 40 nights, it rose, I believe it was seven cubits above the highest mountain. Um, and everything with the breath of life in its nostrils died. So here we are in chapter eight. Could somebody read, um, boy, uh, let's read one through 12. If somebody could read that, please. I'll read it, I'll read it. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained and the water receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Uh, then he sent forth a dove to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned back, returned to him back to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he set forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. Um, anything in there you guys see that you want to uh, maybe talk about, or is it pretty clear? Pretty clear to me. Okay. What What do you think the significance that that uh, the significance between sending out a raven and sending out a dove? And you had mentioned that a raven was unclean, right? Right. Yeah. What do you guys think the significance of that raven was? Or the dove? Well, as I was saying, the ravens is, is part of a breed of birds that aren't clean because they eat other dead animals. And so if any everything else has died on Earth because of the flood, and then you would have, like, Loading carcasses everywhere, and so pretty much the raven's having a party. He's not going to come back. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> it's interesting because the language that it, that it that it uses when it talks about the raven, it says he went to and fro. Mm. Uh -huh. Does any does anybody else remember? Um, and this this is a stretch, um, but does anybody else remember other to and fro language? Mm. It's interesting. I, I think of, I think the book of Job and then later on in Peter, first or second Peter, it talks about the devil looking yeah. to and fro throughout the earth. And then I think in Peter, it says he's like a roaring lion through to and fro throughout the earth, looking for someone to devour. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, I hadn't made that connection. That's interesting. 
consider that that the the ark was a place of protection, and and a lot of theologians will say that the ark is a symbol or kind of a representation mm. of Christ in, in that they are, um, they are safe mm. in, in the ark. And when the, the raven goes to and fro, he doesn't come back. He wanders. Mm. And so a lot of theologians will say that the raven represents um, the worldly person or, or the unsaved who, who goes out into the world but never returns back to the ark for protection. But the dove does exactly the opposite. The dove comes back into the ark for protection. Um, okay, any mm-hmm. questions about that? Okay. Verse thirteen. In the six hundredth year, and the, excuse me, in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. <clears throat> Excuse me. He said, God says, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. What does this remind you guys of? In the, room, in the beginning, yeah. Mm. Pardon? I don't remember what chapter it is, but when, uh, is it Genesis 2, maybe? Genesis 22? Yep. Yep. Uh, These were the commands that God gave to mankind right after creation. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill, and subdue. And so as Dave talked about last week, um, we see Genesis, a creation from chaos to order. And God gives the command to mankind to be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue. And then uh, just prior to seven, we see the deconstruction of that order and, and chaos ensues again. And now once Noah's stepping off the boat, we're starting to see the recreation of that order. And so the, the command is handed down again, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Really cool to see how, how Noah was, was a, um, a kind of a second Adam, if you will, to, 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 to maybe replenish the earth in a, in a godly way rather than an ungodly way. Um, yeah, guys, we're going to move through this stuff pretty quick because it's, it's for the most part, it's self-explanatory. Um, okay. The end of eight, uh, verse 20, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never, uh, neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What do you guys see in that? The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Yeah. Hmm. Can we, like, explain that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, When we go back to... um, Let me find it here real quick. Where's the Nephilim? Oh, there it is. Mm. (laughs) In in chapter 6, verse 5, it says... Uh, just prior to the flood, 
uh, him warning that he was going to he was going to destroy the earth. He said, "The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intentions of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." Mm-hmm. So God is describing that each person uh, from the beginning, each person is born with an edemic nature. We all have that fallen sin nature. And, and this brings up some really interesting conversation because he's saying that, that, again, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil. So it's, 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 it's describing the root. I mean, it's way down there. It's not just the thoughts of his heart. And then it says <clears throat> that they're evil from their youth. My, my question is, how do we reconcile the idea that children are innocent mm-hmm. with, with, with this statement? Mm. Because I think a lot of us think, oh, that children are innocent, they're, they're, they're born innocent, um, and they, they, have no, uh, they have no sin. Then how do we reconcile that? And I guess the question is, is that true? Are children born innocent? What do you guys think? When, when kids are really little, they're so innocent. Okay. So, yeah. No, they wasn't going to get this for his salvation. They want the coin. They want to share. Those are things that you teach them. You share something. You teach the child. I'm sorry, Sharon. I have a, I have a tough time hearing you. I know. I sit away from the phone, but... To me, I, Dave and I see kids differently. I don't see children as innocent. I see them sometimes as selfish, self-centered. Uh, that to share is not something that comes naturally. Mm-hmm. They want the toy. You know, you teach the child to share that toy. Right. That's why he's a teacher and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so... So if I heard you correctly, you said, David, you see it a little differently, that children are innocent? He sees them as innocent. I don't. Oh, Dave sees them as innocent. You don't. Okay. Um, yeah, let me ask you this. What do you think that selfishness represents? Because I totally agree with you that children are naturally selfish. They have to be taught to be unselfish. What do you think that that selfishness represents? It's all about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but what does what does God say? What God 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 made us to reflect His image. And granted, I, I I agree that children probably don't understand what that image is. But the mm-hmm. fact that they naturally let me ask you this: Do you ever have to teach a child to do bad? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can. Well, you can, but do do they they naturally, as Sharon said, are selfish and 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 they want their own way. What does that remind you of when you think back to Genesis three? Well, in Remember the first- in front of the tree. So when, when Adam and Eve were standing in front of the tree and they were presented with a choice to, mm-hmm. to submit to God's authority or create an authority of their own, Adam and Eve both decided they were going to create an authority of their own, and that was themselves. And I think, Sharon, what you're describing is an evidence of an endemic nature in children in that they, don't want, they, want, to, they, they want to be their own God. I want to do my own thing. What happens when they don't get their way? Face down on the floor screaming. We've all seen it in the grocery store. <laughs> but I think I see where David's coming from as far as children being innocent at first, because like you just, the example you gave, it's like, it's like the sin, I mean, temptation wasn't presented to them. So basically, you know, until it, is presented to them that children really don't have anything to act on. Wouldn't you say? 
Could you explain that a little further for me? Well, it's kind of like <clears throat> God told them about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It really didn't present anything to them. To them, it was just a regular tree, really. But once that idea was planted, it kind of like, you know, started, uh, started, uh, they started asking questions, maybe? Or it uh, presented some doubt or, or curiosity. Okay, curiosity would be the word because we're talking about children. Are, are you suggesting... So, for children, like, until they become curious about things, like, sin doesn't really, or temptation doesn't present itself, and so they don't have anything to act on. I could be... I'm just reaching him now. Yeah, no, that's okay. Are you suggesting that because there, a choice isn't given to them as far as a clear-cut choice, you can sin or not sin, right? that... That they they are innocent because they don't really have that choice. It's not that they don't have that choice; they just don't see it that way. Okay. And we're talking. I think we're talking from little bitty. I mean, like, yeah, one yeah. month old. You know what I'm saying? And I, I mean, I just um, I think it's safe to say that children are innocent because one of the English definitions for innocence is naive. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's okay if they are. They do have sinful. Their intentions are sinful, but they're naive in the fact that they don't know that they are. Mm. They're not aware. Uh-huh. Okay, that's a Victoria, good distinction. I would completely agree with that. That's a really that good distinction. Go ahead, Sean. I, I think that that that. Um, but here's the catch: because we're not aware of our sin, does that make it not sin? Remember, in, remember in sacrifice uh, uh, to atone, they atoned for the sins they knew about and sins they did not know about. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, and this, this is tough because I don't think the Bible's super clear on how God works this out. And I really think that's the crux of the question. Um, scripture makes it very clear that we are born in, in, in sin and 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 we are from. It it says right here that that um, where did it go? Uh, are you thinking of Psalm fifty one oh. or? No, I was oh. looking for the the. It says for the intention of man's heart is evil mm. from his youth, and so I think that the, the case there's a case. That, that folks will make that say that there's a this age of accountability where children are are completely innocent of sin, and and there's a certain age where they understand sin, and that now makes them accountable. But I don't think God, I don't think God, that Scripture says that at all. I think it's pretty clear that we are accountable from our youth. Dave, what do you say about that? Yeah. Is that what you were looking for? Me? Can you hear, can you hear me? I can. Are you talking to me? Yeah. No. Well, earlier you, you in Psalms, so I said, so I was asking, were you referring to Psalm 58.3? Could you read it for me? The wicked are estranged mm. from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Yeah. Mm. Um, no, that's not what I was referring to, but I think that's even more evidence that children are born, um, born in sin and sinful, whether they acknowledge it, understand it or not. Dave, what what do you say? Yeah, I think at least for my mind, it's easier to think of sin like a sickness, um, in the sense that I, I think it's easier for us to grasp that a child can be born sick or diseased from birth um, and rather than think oh that child was born and he's immediately wicked like I think the thought of like oh that's a sinful or wicked child is hard for us to get our minds around because like well he hasn't done anything wrong yet <clears throat> but if we look around the world at us I mean there are children born with disease deformities handicaps and so forth 
I think, you know, physically that we can see or know, but I think what scripture wants us to see is actually all of us. Um, you know, we may come out of the womb physically healthy, but all of us come out of the womb spiritually sick, spiritually dead, actually, is what scripture would say. And so um, we're immediately born diseased, like we're, we're born with the inability to love God and love others more than we love ourselves. And that's we were created to love God and to put the needs of other human beings in front of our own needs. But we don't come out of the womb that way, do we? We come out of the womb uh, immediately screaming for what we want. And uh, it may take five years, 10 years, 20 years, 60, 70 years for us to realize, whoa, I'm a selfish person and my whole life has been about me because I was born with this disease of wanting life to be about me. And it comes to the point of like truly looking to Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus showed me the better way of being human is I need to be like saved from the disease I was born into of selfishness, of self-centeredness. Um to the better way of living in such a way that I actually love God and and care about the needs of others more than my own. And it's this lifelong process, right, of being saved from kind of that disease you were born into into new life in Jesus. So I don't know, for me, when I look at scripture, I think it's easier for me to grasp this thought that we're all born with that, I don't know, sickness, disease, spiritually dead, whatever language you want to use. But I think where people have the biggest hiccup is, well, that's not fair. That baby hasn't done anything wrong yet. Why are they accountable? Like, they, it's not fair they were born into this. Um, and I think that's the human wrestle, right? So I don't know if that's helpful, Sean, or if that's a rabbit trail. But I think it's really hard for us to grasp, like, not getting to start life with a clean slate. Um, I, yeah. I yeah. think that with, with good guidance, it is... It is po- It is numerous mm-hmm. uh, examples of kids uh, as young as five and six that are thinking more about others than themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you got the the girl that was like a, a second grader that was collecting books for kids, and she's been doing this for years. And there's numerous examples. Of yeah. This. So I think I think to make a blanket statement that. Everything's evil, maybe right. in the beginning, but it's fairly easy, in my opinion, as a teacher, to set kids on a semi-right path. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I would say, Dave, I would say you're absolutely right. From a worldly perspective, from a, from a humanistic perspective, we absolutely can, and I think that's a great example of, of kids. Uh, um, our parents are guiding, uh, guiding their children into to, to becoming unselfish people. And uh, again, from a worldly perspective, from a, from a people perspective, that's, that, that's very true. But what about the heart? What about the heart? And, and this is, this is what Dave's speaking about, about, um, about being born into it with this sickness. Um, we, I would say, and, and Dave, you might push back on this a little bit, but I would say that without Christ, without having a new heart as a human being, no longer having a, um, a heart of stone, as Scripture puts it, but a heart of flesh, that God changes in you upon salvation, even when we do unselfish things, they are oftentimes for very selfish motivation. Oh, that's true, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I find that in, even in my own life, I'm... Yeah. <laughs> she got it. Okay. I've had one buzzing around me the whole morning. And I, yeah. I think Ann got it, though. Yeah. I think so. That was evil. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, I would just say that, that even though we can be taught to be unselfish, um, the heart the heart is the motivation and and oftentimes even our unselfishness in our unselfishness it's selfishly motivated um revealing our our sin nature because we are to we're to, to be wholly unselfish remember um 
trust in God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your and treat your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Anything you want to add to that, Dave? Yeah, I would just say an example I like to use. If you ever watch any like documentaries or interviews or quick little clips <clears throat> of like celebrities who don't know Jesus, but they love to be like generous. Um, they love to like do a quick trip to Africa or something and, and play with some, some orphans or village children, or they'll send some money overseas or they'll go to the homeless shelter for a few hours. And typically a camera crew grows with them. Right. <laughs> and nearly every time, if you hear a celebrity movie star, you know, NBA, uh, athlete, whatever, Hey, why did you do that? You'll hear them say, it just felt so good. Like it made me feel so happy. It made me feel so good to to do that for those children, which is great. I, I'm not discouraging that. We need wealthy celebrities and everything. Like give your money away, please, to, to those in less need. So I'm never going to discourage that. But you can even see the motivation for giving something of themselves to another human is it makes me feel good. And it makes me feel a little less guilty that I have more than that orphan. So if I give a little bit, I feel like it kind of alleviates my guilt that I have a good life and they have a rough life. So you see even the motivation driving generosity for them is it makes me feel better. Where uh, someone who, which is great, I, I think that's the beauty of generosity. When we give of ourselves, it actually brings joy back to us, which is the way God has designed it. But when your heart begins to be transformed by God, you start to give of yourself and your motivation is God has loved me so much and been so generous towards me. I can't help but be generous towards others. I become this conduit of generosity and kindness and your motivations change from, well, I want to feel better about myself by giving to you have a compassion and a love towards human beings that are less fortunate and you can't help but give what you have to those in need. So your motivations kind of shift over time towards being like, well, that makes me feel better to, I can't help but see that that person's in need and that God wants to use me to help that person and love that person. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I think just adding to what you, or agreeing with what you're saying, Sean, motivations come from the heart. And if you dig into like, quote unquote, good works, um, only good motivations can come from having a heart that is becoming like Jesus. Um, so anyway, yeah, just agreeing with you, Sean. Yeah. And this, and this is a tough conversation because we all want to believe yeah. that, that children are innocent. But but here's the thing. When, in case you have yeah, the, the, the when we look at the scope of Scripture in its totality, we we don't see the picture that um, that children are innocent in, in any way, shape, or form uh, from birth onward. And how that works, guys, I don't know. How God how God says a child who appears to know no evil is still, as Dave said, sick. I, I don't know. I think that's one of the mysteries of God. But here's the catch. You know, we, we've talked about this multiple times. If we're to believe Scripture and, and we're to look at life through the lens of Scripture, whether we understand it or not, we have to go, okay, God, you did this. I'm going to trust what you say, mm-hmm. even though I just don't understand it. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry I can't be any more helpful than that. But I think that's super helpful, Sean. I, I think of when I had the, the privilege of going through seminary to be prepared as a pastor. I'm so thankful for professors who know theology. They know the Bible like crazy. But I think a few of my favorite professors would stop and they would say, okay, that's a great theological gym and like take a stance on that. But now stop and think about as hard as it may be sitting down in front of some grieving parents that just lost their their three-year-old in a, in a tragic death. Now you have to look them in the eye and you have to know as a pastor, just as a fellow human being, how do you love them in that moment when they're asking you, is, is my three-year-old in heaven, right? Like that's heavy. And so theology is one thing, but if it doesn't move into an ability to love another human being as they're mourning or grieving or asking questions, you know, my response to those grieving parents would be, if you look at the heart of God throughout Scripture, I would say exactly what Sean just said. 
trust that the Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. He's patient. He's abounding in love and mercy. God always finds a way to bring mercy. And, uh, and it also says he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So I have to just kind of put that in his hands and say, God, I, I trust you with that child's life. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to look those parents in the eye and say, well, that child's in heaven or that child's in hell. I'm just going to say, I do know that I believe in a God who is compassionate, gracious, merciful, um, and has demonstrated that he would even give up his own son on the cross for you and for me. And so I, I believe in that God and I put my faith in him and I encourage you to do that as well. But I can't give you like this theologically solid answer that's just gonna, you know, give you all the answers. I'm just gonna ask you to trust in him with me. So that helped me so much to think through it that lens of like, you know, when it when the rubber meets the road, how do we where does faith come into this, right? So I know agree or disagree, Sean, but that's kind of how I would go about that. No, I think that was uh from a practical perspective, that was perfectly said. I, I, I agree with you. Not only do we have to trust him in theology, but we have to, as that theology plays out, we have to trust when we look at the narrative of Scripture, how loving and patient God is. We have to trust that he's that with, with every everything. Mm-hmm. Dave, how do you feel about that? Are you talking to me? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. We need, we need I, like, I, nicknames. I was just, yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was just sorting that through in my brain, and I, I still, and I never will not believe this, that while there is a lot of evil in people, there is also a lot of good in people. And I don't think, and and yes, a lot of people give so that they can say, oh, I gave, mm-hmm. right? Yay me. But I think <laughs> a lot of people give out of the heart as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, I like that. And, and here's why, because we see that we're created in the image and likeness of God. And, and, and I think that uh, this is, as Dave said, it's kind of theological gymnastics. It's kind of tough because um, I, I see that we're created in the image of God and, and God's likeness. And so we're designed to reflect that. And so I do think that there are, um, there are, people that do good things mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe even unselfishly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, I, I think I would agree with you with that. Um, so yeah. Are you okay with that? Yep. Cool. Okay. Um, real quick, before we close up, I wanted you to notice what's the first thing Noah does when he steps off the ark. What verse is that, Sean? Uh, 20, I'm sorry. 20, oh. Mm. He built an altar? Yeah. He built an altar to the Lord immediately um, mm. and offered burnt offerings. Uh, and this is interesting. I've had this question posed to me. It says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, <clears throat> the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Do you think that... Do you, <laughs> Do you think that the, the, the actual smell was pleasing to God, or do you think it was the motivation that Noah stepped off the ark and immediately acknowledged God? That sounds kind of weird, huh? Uh-huh. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I've been told because I don't know, that uh, Sharon said it, burning flesh doesn't sound pleasing. (laughs) (laughs) But when I put a steak on the grill, it smells pretty good. (laughs) It sure does, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I only bring that up because somebody had asked me in one of my other groups, and and I was was like, I I don't know. I I would say that maybe maybe a little bit of both. Maybe maybe it is pleasing to God. But I I think that the, the, the... the crux of it is that that Noah, what's pleasing to God is that Noah was once again obedient. He stepped off and immediately acknowledged God. Um, I think it's really um, also interesting how it says, the Lord said in his heart. Uh-huh. We're going to yeah. see that a couple of times mm-hmm. going into nine, too. 
Hmm. I have another question though. Um, it says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. So the recreation of the world once again, does that mean that he has wiped away the curse from Adam's time where it says, because of you, the ground is cursed? Yeah, it doesn't say that the curse was reversed. Yeah. It only says that he will never again curse it. Okay. So I would say that we still have, um, um, when it says all the days of your life, are you going to toil uh, yeah. for, for, for sustenance? Think, think about prior to that, God provided everything. Uh-huh. And we only had to, to, to upkeep it. Then it was, no, you're going to have to work. If you're not going to trust me, you're going to have to work hard for your food. And then we see with Cain, he made it even more difficult with Cain. But I don't see that curse being reversed at all. Mm-hmm. I only see him saying, I, I won't curse it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does, make a, he does make an interesting statement. He says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. What do you think, he, what do you think God's saying there? He's, he's listing... Seed time, harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not cease. God's saying that 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 as long as the earth remains, as long as there's not, he doesn't return and create a new heaven and a new earth, the time, the, the, the seasons, everything's going to be consistent. There won't be another, another flood. There won't be another um, large-scale catastrophe that literally wipes the, the, the planet clean. Um, and so... Um, just lost my train of thought. Where was I going with that? Just just talking about how there won't be another flood or God will sustain or maintain creation until the end of the earth. Yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah mm-hmm. that, that God is going to continue to provide what he has provided in the mm-hmm. past for mankind. But again, that, that as you, as you, as your question was posed down that I don't think the, 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 uh, there will be another curse on the earth. It's just going to remain as he intended it to remain from here on out. Yeah, and if you guys want to, because Anne, I think that's a really good observation. If you guys want to look it up later on your own time, look at Romans 8. Romans 8 is such a cool picture of how through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the resurrection is kind of like a new Noah, like a recreation of humanity. And we're being made new in Christ, and we're going to be um, like completely new. Um, but but in Romans eight, Paul talks about how creation itself is groaning. Uh, creation is is waiting with eager expectation. Like like creation itself is like this this living organism, I guess you will, that is like longing to be made new. Uh, as 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 we're being made new, so the heavens and the earth are have been like kind of groaning under the pain of this curse for you know thousands of years and can't wait to be made new. Um, and so anyway, there's just some really really cool thoughts in there of like it's not just us who are being made new, but this earth is being made new that we look forward to as well because the the new creation in Christ. So Romans 8, if you want to pick up in like verse 18 and following, really, really good passage about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else uh, before we close up in, in this chunk here or any other uh, any other questions? No? Okay. Would, uh, would somebody mind praying for us as we close up? I can get us. Thanks, Dave. All right. Father, we thank you for your word. It truly does bring life. We love you so much. And Lord, there are a lot of questions. I think about, you know, there's life in the blood. Uh, why did there need to be sacrifice? Why why does sin lead to death? Why um, are children born with a just a selfish desire and um, all these questions we have this morning. I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that we can get together and ask questions, not be afraid of judging one another, but instead we're seeking to pursue truth and wisdom together. And so, 
Lord, in the meantime, while we pursue answers, while we pursue wisdom, uh, we ask that you'd give us faith. You'd give us trust um, that you're good, that we would trust that this story is true, um, and that you would help us to know how to take uh, these examples and live them out in our daily lives. So we, we ask for help, Lord, and we thank you for uh, just how good your word and your truth and your wisdom is. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right. All right, guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah thank Bless you, you Sean. I, I was enjoying this morning, sitting back, just, yeah, enjoying some some Genesis. So thank you again. I always appreciate your input, Dave, because you have a much smoother way with words than I do. Um much much better explanations but so i always appreciate your input thanks for that this morning was fun i i appreciate how many good questions there were you guys know how much we value interaction and and just engagement and i learned so much more like it pauses me to stop and think like hold on yeah why why sacrifice why why blood okay yeah why you know so anyway i love the questions let's let's keep asking good questions yeah. All right, everybody. Have a good morning. I'm going to, uh, Sean, do you have a few minutes to, I can throw a question out at you? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, if you guys don't mind, we'll go ahead and sign off here and we will see you next week. See you next week. All right. See you guys. Bye.